Quite a few of you have suggested other artworks and churches around the place. Um, no need to go to Europe for art in a church. As Megan Dunn eloquently explained earlier this morning, the chapel at the Compassion Centre in Island Bay in Wellington has beautiful artwork by John Drawbridge set against native trees and hills. Um, Jared Davidson is my next guest and he's nodding at that. Do you know about that? Um, at Archives New Zealand we have quite a, where I used to work, some John Brainbridge paint work, uh, artwork, so I recognise the artist, but not the church itself, no. Um, Jared Davidson, whom you just heard from, is an archivist and an author whose books examine the overlooked or even erased parts of our history, his latest, looks at the role of forced prison labour in the colonial project of New Zealand and its Pacific territories. Davidson writes that the work of prisoners has shaped our urban centres and our rural landscapes in profound ways, but that those stories are largely unknown. Uh, The book is called Blood and Dirt, Prison Labour and the Making of New Zealand Blood and Dirt, I think, uh, with which Mark said, capital comes dripping. Did he say that? He did, yes. I think you told me he said that. I'm quoting him back at you, back at me, back at you. In the prologue, you tell a story about a school and a prison. Please elaborate on that for me. Sure. So the book starts with a chap called Harry Brown, who's a 52-year-old returned serviceman. He's kind of fallen on hard times. He's on the bottle, in and out of work. And he's arrested for being idle and disorderly, which is such an interesting term, idle and disorderly, basically for being a vagrant. And he's sent up to the prison on the terrace. Uh, and he's there to basically pull down that prison in 1925 because they're, they're moving on to different sites. And they're making a way for Tauro Primary School. So the Tauro Infant School was nearby. And so Harry's busy working and unfortunately a perfect uh, section of clay falls down and, and kills Harry. He's been in jail for about three weeks. And I talk about the his labour and his death being kind of congealed in that clay of Tauro School. And it's a good metaphor for the book and how much of our landscape, how much of our urban centres and rural landscapes have been shaped and impacted by prison labour, such as Harry's. There's, a great, there's some fantastic pictures in this book but there's a, a great picture of the terrace jail being demolished in 1927 and the children of Tiara Infant School visible right next door to it and a warder standing guard in the watchtower to the left. I have no idea that a prison was there. Yeah, it was not only there, but the prisoners marched out every day, sometimes in chains if they'd been playing up and formed so many of the streets, including the terrace, but so many of the streets into Wellington, and uh, Wellington, possibly ahead of Dunedin or Littleton, could take the prison labour capital. I'm undecided. I did think it was Dunedin because of all of the work that prisoners did there, but Wellington's pretty close. You suggest that New Zealand exceptionalism and the fatal shores of convict Australia overshadowed the story of prison labour here. In other words... Australia was the convict state, right? But we were nice middle-class chaps or working-class trying to improve ourselves. We didn't, you know, have prison labour. But extraordinary amount of it, right? Yes, an extraordinary amount. And I think that 
um, because New Zealand didn't import convicts and Australia did, we've kind of dismissed, uh, dismissed the history of how Aotearoa officials at the state made use of the kind of untapped labour pool that was being held in the shoddy jails that we had in the 19th century. And so part of the book is to try and look at the prison less as a place behind bars and more of a a, a centre of work and labour and, and power that kind of is infused across history in Aotearoa. You argue that as imprisoned Workers, forced labour transformed the world around them. They too were transformed. Yeah, so I mean, I've always written labour and social history, and when I started this book, I quickly realised it was an environmental history. There was so much transformation of the environment, um, but I've come to understand that it's a two-way process, and actually, the environment itself has had such an impact on the shape of the work prisoners did, where prisoners were placed, and in the Pacific, especially, the type of work that prisoners did for plantations, for guano, for phosphate. Um, So the environment isn't a bit player, it's right there, tied up in all of these ideas of power and class. Your historical story begins from the bottom up, which, which is really hard, because, you know, as we all know, history is written by the victors. We get descriptions of convicts and prisoners in quite a lot of gritty detail here. Where did you get that from? Um, It it is very hard. Prisoners, although they've been surveilled and measured and, and, you know, numbered by the state, to get the actual voices of their work and their experience, especially in the 19th century, is very hard to do. A lot of these prisoners were working class. They were in and out for drunkenness or vagrancy, and they weren't idle. Yeah, exactly idle, and they weren't the type of people to keep journals and to donate letters to somewhere like the Turnbull where I work. So it's about kind of prizing out stories from official sources, um, reading between the lines, newspapers, and I mean, I'm thankful my research in the 21st century with things like digital tools um, for family historians we can start to tease out some of those stories but a lot of it is is hard yakka in the archives to be honest. How much of um, what we see in Hanma now for example is due to prison labour? Yeah that that really changed how I looked at Hamna. So I grew up in Christchurch and Hamna was one of those places you'd go for a holiday and yeah. I remember camping in the the campground there and looking out to the forest. So before prisoners were sent there in 1903, that whole environment was open scrub tussock basically. And so from 1903 to 1913, prisoners planted thousands and thousands upon acres um, of forests and you know, I don't know how many people today enjoying the bird song under Hamner Forest or going for a, a trail would realise that those trees that they're um, walking amongst were planted at the behest of prisoners. There's a lovely account that you have. You're quoting an intrepid journalist called Constance Barnacote in 1903, and she had stopped at the lonely Waiotapu Hotel. Um, 30 kilometres south of Rotorua and she had boundless views over volcanic plains and then she spotted something out of place you say and then she writes in the vast expanse of scrub coloured land white as snow in spring with the blossoms of the aromatic monica and in which steam is constantly rising in all directions from the numberless hot springs 
one cluster of plain, unadorned white buildings that one strikes the eye. And this was Waiotapu Prison, a forest plantation, which was the same kind of prison, presumably it was built in Hamna as well. Yeah, so Waiotapu was the first one and formed in 1901. And again, not many people would probably realise that driving through the central plateau and past Kayangaroa Forest was that all of that pine originated from this camp in Waiotapu and the, the planting of prisoners and... That really blew my mind, the fact that, you know, this multi-billion dollar forestry industry had, had roots in, in forced labour, um, to excuse the pun, but yeah. yeah. Um, the, I mean, it's impossible to imagine what New Zealand would look like were it not for this. Somebody would have done it, presumably, if they hadn't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't want to claim that prisoners did all of this work. Um, obviously, a lot of public works and forestry and other aspects of colonial development were done by paid workers, including Māori. Um, but what we have overlooked is the sheer amount of work that prisoners did in aid of colonisation from streets, from harbours, um, Port Littleton to Aramoana Mole, um, right through to forests and the prison farms of the 1920s and 1930s as well. They were pretty horrible, these prisons. Freezing. You've got an account from Hanma of how the men virtually mutinied because it was so cold and in fact there were deaths attributed to the freezing temperatures. Yeah, that's right. So Hamna was often uh, frosty, icy cold and that would prevent planting and the men did not have any stoves or ways of keeping warm or drying their clothes in their little huts or prison cabins and so they petitioned and that was one of the archives I did come across where their voice is coming through and they petitioned for stoves in their huts, which were turned down because they argued that there was one in the mess hall and that was fine. And in the end, a prisoner did die of pneumonia as a result. But, um, yeah, pretty horrid places. And the, the prisons in the 19th century were just so shoddy, and that was partly why officials marched these prisoners out in chains into the streets to do all this work because um, some of them were so flimsy, it was pretty easy to escape. There's a story of a, the first prison in Littleton, the jailer's coming back from running an errand and he looks up and sees the prison walking towards him and the seamen had basically punched their legs through the bottom of the floor and were walking way back to their ship. So those kind of examples in the, in the mid, to early, you know, mid to late 19th century made sense in terms of shoddy prisons and getting workers out there. And, and in that time, the idea of idleness and the idea that waste you know, all this labour was wasted and all these landscapes were wasted, that was more criminal than crime itself. Idleness and improvement. Expand on that for me. I did not realise that the original meaning of improvement meant to make a profit. That's right. So the idea of improvement threads its way through the book from improving so-called idle uh, workers or prisoners to improving wasted and idle land. But the original meaning of improvement comes from the late 1500s and it has to do with the birth of capitalism and it was the idea that to improve something was to make your land reap a profit. Um, so 
you know, the idea of improvement is really grounded in this idea of turning something, especially land, into profit. And that story works its way and frames the story from Marsden, Samuel Marsden, arriving in 1814 in the Bay of Islands, wanting to improve Māori and their, their country, right through to the kind of prison farms and the grasslands revolution. And your historical story is infused with the idea of the capitalist enterprise, that prisons and prison labour were part of the capitalist and the colonial conditioning, as it were. Yeah. I mean, you're an anarchist at heart, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say that I'm an anarchist who's read Marx, hence the title of the book, yeah. but yeah. And uh, so is this, does this enable you to take a more critical view of what many people might think was just natural in a raw colonial environment. Yeah, I think having that framework, I mean, one of the great tools that historians um, working in a radical tradition can do is try to, you know, go below the surface and look at some of the root causes of these things. So that definitely helped my framework and the lens I use when approaching this this work and the work of prisoners. There's a lot of um, listener feedback coming in about this subject and I don't think you've looked at the Tupare Gardens in New Plymouth, um, but somebody says that um, a New Zealand six-star rated beautiful garden was started by Sir Russell Matthews in 1931 employing men in the depression over the fence labour scheme, not prisoners but perhaps continuity of a concept of labour and wanting to leave something as a, in a legacy project. Yeah, for sure. There's, I mean, there's two things there. Botanical gardens and spaces were a site for prisoners. Um, Dunedin Gardens, Christchurch Gardens, Napier Gardens, they all had prisoners working on them. And somewhere like the Aramoana Mole, um, prisoners started that work in 1874, um, but was taken over by the unemployed soon after. And part of that move out to the Waiatapu prison was because there were claims from the unemployed that prisoners were stealing work of honest industrial you know, men, and, and that was not to be. So there are links there between idleness, keeping people working, unemployment, and prison labour for sure. Somebody else says, my grandfather, this is Bella, my great-grandfather, oversaw prisoners building roads on Rangitoto Island, literally breaking rocks in the hot sun, volcanic rock. Literally, yeah, they really scratched uh, roads, tennis courts, swimming pools out of the surface of the lava there. And, you know, I don't know if any of you have walked up to the summit of Rangitoto, but you can thank prisoners for that work um, and getting to the top. Yeah, is there any memorial? I'm, I'm not sure I haven't visited myself and, you know, I do wonder if we had a memorial to prison labour or to the sites of prisoners working, they'd be everywhere, they'd literally be everywhere yeah. from Mount Ruapehu to the sea, that's no exaggeration, but some places do acknowledge them, Hamna Forest has a info board and I think that it's mentioned on Rangitoto but I haven't visited in, in the wee while to confirm that. Somebody else says, I remember seeing people scything vegetation on the land around... Um, Mount, uh, Rainbow Mountain, Kakaramea, when I was a young kid living in Topo. Mm. It seemed surreal to me at the time, as my possibly faulty memory envisages a brown skinned woman with a white scarf on her head looking at us. 
and I asked Dad who they were, and he said they were prisoners doing work. Mm. Still haunts me. Mm. Um, I don't know whether that's in your book either. Well, that's around that wild type of area, which then expanded through and, and you know, around that, those ah. kind of thermal areas. So, yeah, for sure. And interestingly, when those forest prisons ended, um, it was taken over by Māori workers. So Kaingaroa Forest Village um, was the site of the former prison. So there's some interesting links there as well to the present. It was mainly Irish convicts that were used to establish Samuel Marsden Mission in the Bay of Islands. Yes, that's right. And they came over from Australia. They did, yep. So Samuel Marsden, when he came over and set up uh, Thomas Kendall and some of the other missionaries, brought a number of Irish convicts with them. One of them was Matthew Conroy, which I was really um, surprised to understand that he had links to the Irish Revolutionary Movement, had been sent to Sydney for his role in the Irish um, Rebellion, and had links um, to the various kind of uh, plots to overthrow the prison pen, uh, penal colony in Sydney, and he ends up in the Bay of Islands as one of the Sawyers. And he's been overlooked in, in the main accounts. Um, so that was something that uh, I was able to kind of correct in the research. And provocatively, I also think that Hohe Mission Station could be arguably said to be New Zealand's first prison as well, the way that they chained and kept runaway prisoners on site and used their labour too. So they not only brought convicts, but they made use of convicts ah. in the 1814s. In, in a global sense, who invented prisons? I suppose it goes back to... What does it go back to? Who well, invented prisons? Yeah, the, the prisons, as we think of them today, weren't really around um, till the 1800s, but before that, the links were through houses of correction and the idea that um, people needed to be put to work and improve themselves, you know, and correct themselves and... and be mobilised um, into that new wage economy of the 1500s. So that really originates in the UK and in England. And they had Bridewell Palace, which was a very famous house of correction. Isn't it interesting we still use that word, we do. corrections? Yeah, we do. That it's is, so archaic. Yeah, right? and, and that's the, the, the legacy of um, capitalism and prisons we're still dealing with today. Right. But... It was always capitalism that went hand in hand with prisons. Is that what you're saying? Well, before capitalism, the we think of dungeons and castles, and and they did hold people often debtors to to pay their fines and things. But the modern sense of prisons are really tied up with the rise of capitalism and those ideas of idleness and work. Yeah, for are sure. Are we still hung up on the idea of idleness and work? I suppose we are. I think we are. I think when you look at the people who are in prisons, unfortunately, in terms of statistics, it is vulnerable and, and marginalised people majoritively in, in Aotearoa. And, I mean, I don't think we warehouse prisoners as much as, say, the USA, but I think there is definitely still links to today. Was there any sense of a blurring of the boundary between... How do I mean this? Um... It was a good idea to put people who might not have done much wrong, vagrancy, idleness, whatever, in prison so that you could use them for work and make them work. I mean, one of the things in the 19th century is there weren't support networks, there weren't institutions or spaces to support people with drinking problems, to support the homeless, and so prisons became the stopgap place, a kind of catch-all place for those people 
Um, and yeah, really got a sense that um, why not work these people while they're here? So they had the function of punishment and also that idea of house of correction. But one thing that surprised me, Kim, was that a lot of the prisoners in the 19th century were sailors, you know, international sailors. There were about half a million seamen coming and going between the 1840s and the 1860s. And because of their very strict rules on board, if they played up, they ended up in jails. And they'd do their hard labour, they'd make a street, they'd build a prison, they'd tend the gardens, and then they'd be taken back on board and back onto the ship. And so one of the things I found was that this blurriness you talked about is really there and that um, someone could go from a prisoner to a common labourer or a seaman the very next day. Of course, the prisoners um, from Parehaka were put to work. What, what were they put to work on? Yeah, and that, that's a that's an aspect of the book um, that is... Uh, um, quite sombre. So Māori political prisoners were put to work, and there were various phases of Māori political prisoners. Um, some would probably say they're better termed captives rather than prisoners. But Taranaki prisoners. What would the difference be? I guess someone might say that they weren't tried necessarily in a court of law for crime. It I was understand. a result of um, prisoners th- indicate some kind of judicial process. Exactly right. And right. so you know, uh, especially those Waikato prisoners in the 1860s, and those sent. Um, off to the Chatham Islands, they didn't necessarily have proper trials. But yeah, the Taranaki prisoners um, in the, the late 1860s and also in the late 1870s, there were two main waves sent to Wellington, sent to Dunedin to do work all around um, Dunedin and the harbour roads and various spaces and in Wellington as well. And then, again, we had another... The Targa Girls High School site. Yes. What were they building there? Yeah, so the pro- high school itself. Yeah, they basically levelled the grounds and made way for the Otago Girls High School. But they did a lot of work around the streets uh, and levelling Bell Hill and, and botanical garden sites as well. And mm. then Taranaki prisoners, again, you had another phase in the 1890s where they were sent to here. They were did work on Miramar Peninsula. They built the road from Shelley Bay to Scorching Bay and um, did a lot of work there. So uh, unfortunately it's been a really common practice in our history to take Māori political prisoners and put them to work. You would think if there was a serious intent behind improving the prisoners by putting them to work, teaching them, you know, good honest toil makes good honest people, that there would be more recognition of it at the time rather than just taken for granted, which it sounds like it was. I think it was taken for granted. By by the 1900s, there was a move towards reforming the prisons and to try and rehab, rehabilitate prisoners and, and address them as as people. But it was also tied... This, was this part of the rehabilitation? Yeah, part of um, some of the prison camps and um, the prison farms, the idea was that we could rehabilitate these prisoners. But at the same time, the economy was booming in terms of agricultural labour. Land was being freed up from Māori and the stations and made available for small settlement or dairy farms. And so the prisons reflected that as well. So yes, on the one hand, you have rehabilitation, but at the same time, it's meeting the economic needs of an agricultural society in the early 1900s as well. Um, somebody says, in Auckland we lived with a 40-foot wall of volcanic rock holding up the street about us and it's on the boundary of the city and Mount Eden Borough. Prison labour 
Um, and that wall contained the sewage and the water reticulation and the porous volcanic rock of the city is probably the reason that Auckland has not had the sewage dilemmas of Victorian Wellington. Mm. Um, I remember prison farms, says Peter. Small prisons in rural areas, especially, as somebody said, around Ruapehu. Some of these prisons were not so bad. Prisoners learnt skills useful when they got out, although somebody um, controversially recently said that about slavery. Some were cold and the food was bad, but others were okay. Is it your perception that they were okay in parts? Yeah, I mean, uh, we have to look at this. So my book covers the 1840 right to the 1930s, and of course prisoners changed, prisons changed and adapted in that time. And sure, a lot of prisoners probably were thankful to be working outside, to be outside of the city. Um, but I guess I'd say to that that it's it's a shame that we feel that we have to imprison people before we can give them the support and the, the tools to, to learn a trade. But it's interesting hearing the readers and the listeners. Everyone seems to have a little story about prison labour and can reflect on it. But hopefully, hopefully this book does bring it together into a, a narrative that people can enjoy. Yeah. Um, I think that definitely it does because a lot of people are saying, yeah, I remember the story, I remember that story. Um, the Maori, of course, used slaves, captive labour. Was, was that in any way imprisoned? No, I, I think it's really clear, we need to be really clear that prisons were foreign to Te Ao Māori. There were no prisons in Aotearoa before Pākehā arrived. And How did they contain the slaves? Um, it's, it's, a, it's just a d- different paradigm, really. They were, they were captives. Um, Hazel Petrie's book, Outcasts of the Gods, really uh, is worthwhile reading because she makes it clear that this wasn't slavery in the sense that we know it right. um, and that we just shouldn't really make those comparisons. Um, between 1787, you say, and 1853... It's not that long, like 60 years or something. 150,000 men, women and children were sent out of Britain. How many of those, were they all in some way criminal or penal people? I mean, uh, those people were often transported for the most trifling offences, you know, stealing a handkerchief. Sure. Yeah, a, a gold watch, um, a few pennies, and some of those first convicts that came with Marsden were of the, that case of being sent across the world to Australia for the most trifling offences. And that's where those prisons start to come in as well because the idea of transportation and capital punishment was starting to be replaced with the prisons. And, yeah, unfortunately the legacy of our prisons are really tied up with that history as well. When you start out to write a book like this... Um, which is which encompasses, as you say, many years and many parts. Do you know when it's finished? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you don't, um, but you do have to stop somewhere. And, of course, there's things I've left out and have to make decisions. Like all writers and historians, we make decisions by what we include and what we don't include. Um, but I stopped when I felt like the narrative was strong enough and... And, yeah, there's, there's still so much more to be said, Kim, and um, I hopefully others will pick up this research as well. It's very revealing. Thank you, Jared Davidson, whose book's called Blood and Dirt, Prison, Labour and the Making of New Zealand. Thank you. Thank you.